Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Lee. Thank you, Tom. Why don't we start with you telling me how rigged the system is? Oh, what, what system? You mean the <laughs> politics? Yeah, you were just telling me. Well, I was just telling you about how I think that like uh, there are people that we don't know about that are in the shadows. And uh, there's a new religion, which is capitalism. Well, that's been that way for a long time. You I think mean, so? Yeah. I mean, we worship the dollar bill. Yeah. But um, I think they've really, really, like, racked it up recently. You know what I mean? With the iPad and iPod and all that stuff. And um, Well, like, this Trump mania, I think, is rooted in white fear. <laughs> because, like, white people have owned the power structure in the United States forever. Yeah. And so, like... Uh, and I'm I'm from like a Republican family, yeah, and I'm like, I'm the left wing liberal. They call me Tommy the commie uh-huh. in the family. <laughs> uh-huh. So um, everything that they hate is like health care, um, gay marriage, all this stuff. So like I think that they, there's this white fear that this power structure that they've had forever is is running through their fingers. Yeah. So like Trump with all of his megalomania. Uh, racist remarks. Well, these are the exact people that are, are actually oppressing them. You know, right? It's like they believe in trickle down economics. That they say that, but it never trickles down, right? Right. But like these these people that support people like people like Trump, right? Believe that you mean? Oh, that's the American dream. I'm going to get some of it. You know, what I mean, if this guy's president, but they hoard the money, right? And they don't want to give you know these people health care and all this stuff. And they're just, uh, the whole thing is rigged, even with the Republic and the Democrats. You know what I think is the worst thing that ever happened to this country? Mm-hmm. And I think it explains the rise of Trump. This is my dime store theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember in the 80s, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Yeah. The Robin Leach sure. television show? I think everyone in America watched that show and they thought, man, I want to be a fucking rich asshole guy. Yeah. And so people in this country want to be rich so bad that they think if they vote for this rich guy, that they're all going to be rich. Yeah. But you know what? You know, I don't, I, I've been sober for about 14 years. And oh, I'm I two mean, and a half. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. And what I realized, you know, long ago is, is that notoriety, money, and all that stuff is not going to fix me. I've let it go. I have. If I, if I don't let it go, I'll kill myself. You're not fixable? Yeah, I don't think I'm fixable, no. I, I believe that sex, drugs... Um, and the other things that I've chased in my lifetime are not going to fix me. So I just believe, I live in the moment. I try to. And um, I believe in some sort of spiritual. spiritual now, is, the, is this a prepared answer that you had that you've somehow um, well, first of all, woven can I just, into our political start? No, can I just say this is that <laughs> you started with this political thing, which really shocked me. Right. <laughs> and it's like, I never talk about politics. And um, I'm also a little intimidated that I'm even in a room with you right now. Right, so you started with that, and so now I don't know where else to go. So I we're sh- old friends. Why would you be intimidated? I know because it's the thing is, is that um, when I was a kid, young, I saw you at the improv when you had long hair, and this is in nineteen ninety in San Diego. In San Diego, and um, Mike Carano was the manager, and he snuck me in, and I saw you perform, and I so I have this thing in my head of like, holy fuck, it's Tom Rhodes, and I have that with only a couple of people. I think Dice has that with me, where it's in my head. I'm like, oh my god, it's Dice or whatever. And you're one of a Mark Maron has that with me too. But other than that, like I've met all kinds of people that are way bigger than you, but they don't intimidate me. Well, that's a good start. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good start, right? For you to express how uncomfortable you feel in my presence. 
It's so. not an uncomfortability because I know that you're a nice person, right? So yeah. you're a good dude. And you and then also that throws me off a little bit too. That you're so nice, then you're like, oh, I can't hate him, you know? So, yeah. So what do you remember of that set in San Diego? Nothing. I remember you like with your hand, like brushing your hair to the side. Yeah, you I missed I mean? that hair flip, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You that was that really expressive. The 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 long hair bangs. Yeah. To make a point and then like run your fingers through your bangs. Yeah. But yeah. also you were, like you just did right now. I just did it, yeah, because you <laughs> you you did it. But um you also seem like um an extremely relevant, you know what I mean, person. You know what I mean? Like I used to watch because I started at the comedy store, so I used to watch old dudes like, you know, um Rick Wright. You know him? Yeah, he's in England now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And not that I have nothing against Rick Wright. But when you watch someone like Rick Wright, to me, it's it looked like somebody from a different era. When you look at Argus, I love Argus Hamilton. Yeah. But it's obviously a little old timey, whatever. But um, when I always looked at you, you it seemed like, oh my god, this is somebody that's talking on behalf of my generation or me. You know what I mean? So. Now you were not doing stand up when you saw me. You at that time, no. Okay. I saw you, Bobcat, I saw Tom Kenny, I saw Regan, and then that made me go, oh, I think I want to do it. But it took me a couple of years to do it after That's that. That's interesting, because I see none of those people's influence on your comedy. And I, you're, one of, <laughs> you're one of my favorite people to watch. Oh, you're just so uh, energetic and like uh, so shockingly odd to, yeah. to an audience's sensibilities. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I um, and you, you stopped taking your shirt off recently. Yeah, because I, I'm getting, I've gotten older. And, but you haven't seen my uh, when I headline. Okay. When I headline, I get completely naked. Because for like, you don't see too many Asian guys be that fierce sexually. And I always like, I always thought you had this really kind of like uh, uh, bravado. Like, um, well, I mean, a sex. Well, the reason why I do comedy in the first place is because of sexuality, I think. Because when I was a kid, I was molested by a guy with Down syndrome, right? I don't know why you smile. <laughs> I mean, why would you smile at that? I'm so sorry. I know, but that's. Well, you smiled at that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know, but. That's, I know. That's your comedy perfectly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it started there, right? You weren't really molested by that, it. 100% I was. By a dude with Down syndrome? Yeah. Come on, really? Yes. I say it in my act. Wow. In fact, when I was... Well, you should thank that guy because that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it is very funny. <laughs> but I didn't think it was funny until I was at this place called um, Ocean View Recovery Center. I was a drug addict from the early days. and um, That's real. You were yeah. really Because mal- it's... That like just sounds like something you say on, would say on stage that you said you do say it on stage. Yeah, I do say on stage, yeah. And when I was at Ocean View Recovery Center, I said that, I had never really talked about it in a group meeting, like kids, you know, with a bunch of kids, you know, and I, so, and then the counselor said, well, when we do knees to knees, you know, you should, you should tell your parents that. And what knees to knees was, was a big group of people, like all the families would come to this gigantic meeting and they would form a circle and then they would have two chairs in the middle of the circle. And then you would go knees to knees with your mom or your dad and tell them about the darkest thing that ever happened to you. Right? So imagine like a hundred people in a circle and I have my dad who's Korean. He does he knows nine words in English. And I say I said to my dad, I go, I was molested by a guy with Down syndrome a bunch of times when we lived in Minnesota. 
And then you could hear a pin drop in the room. And then you could hear my dad go, <laughs> and he laughed. Great. So I'm not, now I don't You're not doing yet. Have you ever told anyone that who didn't laugh? <laughs> but then when he laughed, my brother laughed and my mom laughed and then I laughed. And then everyone at the rehab thought that we were psychotic. And crazy people. And then you thought, why? Well, I, I didn't have to have a drug problem. I could have just yeah, been honest. I could have just been honest. But also in high school, I couldn't get girls at all. At all. Really? Like a Sadie's Hawkins <clears throat> dance where the girl asked the guy. I never yeah. went. And I, um, yeah, I never thought I would ever get laid. And then when in 2000, not 2000, 1995, when I first started doing stand-up, it was one of the things I just said to myself, if I don't do stand-up, right, I'm never going to do anything. You know what I mean? So I started doing it, and then all of a sudden the whole world opened up to me. So I, I think, and I also, you you would watch Deaf Comedy Jam, and you would see African American comics, which I love a lot of them, would rip on Asians. You'd see comics rip on Asians. Yeah, they small dicks. They eat dogs or whatever. Yeah. And I also thought to myself, there's no voice combating that. Right. You had you know you had Margaret, Margaret who's my, one of my favorites, right? Yeah. But you never had a guy, you know what I mean, defend it. So I thought that. I think the reason why I do my comedy the way I do it aggressively in that way is so that I can show people that we're not submissive, that we're not, you know, quiet and follow the rules. I'm actually a, a drug addict. You know what I mean? I'm a sexual monstrosity. And um, I want to just show you that this is how I do it, you know? And a lot of people like it, but a lot of people hate it. But. I like the way you do it. I like it. It's really fierce. And, uh, and like I said, so energetic and like and then and, and then you do have this way of uh luring the audience in with like a setup and then just you know smacking them uh with the sucker punch yeah i need to write more and that's been my problem what do you want to express i don't know that you're that's not a, expressing because this like today i try to write and i just i just like i don't even know where to start i'm just kind of like well, I can never sit down and go, okay, I'm going to write jokes from three to four. I always, people always ask me, you know, how do you come up with material? My best material comes up from having conversations with friends. And then, you know, naturally you're being yourself with your friends. And then uh, you say something funny and then just, you know, make a note of it. Right. Yeah. You know what? I should do that. But I so don't. So maybe hanging out with friends more often is the. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a recluse. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should do that. Yeah, you know what? A lot of my act... Maybe if you went out in the world more often. You think I should? No. <laughs> because I, I do play a lot of video games. What's you your know? favorite? Right now I'm playing Fallout, but I play Destiny and uh, a lot. And I play FIFA. And I have a girlfriend. And I don't go out that much. And I, you know, I have a porn addiction, I think, maybe, too. You know, so you know, I think I need to... What are your key porn search words? I don't have that. What I have is I'm my I'm a thing. I have sites that I belong to that I pay money for. No porn sites. Oh yeah. Really? I need high def. I need. Um, you need good lighting. High quality. Yeah. yeah. When it's blurry, when it's you know glossy, I can't do it. So so it's not that kind of niche. Um, you don't like uh, the the weird. I don't know, bondage, people being peed on. You're not paying for that kind of stuff. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do have a specific thing that I, 
I'm afraid to share it. I haven't shared it at group level. Yeah. But um, it's not... I don't think it's a problem. I remember years ago, um, when I, I lived in New York, 98, 99, and uh, I was doing a lot of cocaine and, and, and watching uh, a little too much porno. And I, I remember I wrote in my notebook that uh, cocaine and pornography does not produce life's higher wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did write that? Yeah. Yeah. It's really true. It, You're not going to get like life's big answers. Yeah. From Or have you done porn and methamphetamine? No. Oh, there's no end in sight. There's just answers galore. Yeah, it's just, yeah, a lot of answers, no questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's really, you can't, it's two days of just being, you can't even get erect really. And it's perverse and it's a, it's a bad, but I have 14 what do you years like, sober. Uh, what do you like most about the, the porn sites that you're visiting? I mean, any anything you'd like to recommend? Maybe they could be a sponsor of the podcast. No, I think I'm trying to weed it out of my life, Tom. Oh, okay. Yeah, I want to get healthier. I mean, I look at your place right now, and maybe this is what I want. I mean, hard wooden floors, yeah. books, a beautiful wife. Yeah. You have your your your, your fat friend from the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just re- you're sitting here. You'll appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, this. my. Yeah, but this is the maybe the life I want. Because this, this shows culture. This shows because your wife was making a little fish taco thing. Yeah. And it was a really... I like it because it's a smart camp. Yeah. You know, we play... Uh, one thing because, you know, look at the phone and the internet too much like when we wake up. So since we moved here, I got this massive vinyl collection. So we start the day listening to uh, vinyl records. Uh, and we start the day with like classical or jazz we've been like mostly ella fitzgerald to start the day um <laughs> yeah the gershwin songbook specifically sure. sure and uh you got what gets me yeah that all that stuff i got rhythm but like i got my guy <laughs> yeah I, you're terrible who could ask for anything it's terrible more? so yeah it's smart camp yeah you know, trying to so do you think that, that that that's a good way to start the day yeah, before you let the news in, the news of the world, right? And then start looking at you know the emails and Facebook and Twitter and all that shit. Because then, you know, you're you're coming out of dreamland, where who knows what ideas were coming to you in the in the sleepscape. And then if if you don't start you know gently with your 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 own thoughts. And you let this uh, tidal wave of, of fucking internet pollution in. That's right there. You just nailed it, I think. For me, the reason why I can't write as of late is because I have I watch so much junk. I'm constantly preoccupied with Twitter and Instagram and, and social media. And um, <clears throat> I play a lot of video games. I don't think that it's healthy. I really need to maybe go out into the forest and just meditate and just get my mind still because no information nothing creative is coming in yeah well i've been reading i like i've always had a problem reading too much news and stuff and then also you can see by the books that i read constantly and too much and my wife ashna actually she keeps encouraging me to stop reading she said you you know enough already you need to let it flow out of you so she actually wants me to, to, um, to, 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 you know, put the books down and stop reading. Stop reading 
and just what do you do with your time then? And let it let let the information that I already have flow, flow out, out of my head, flow out of your head. You yeah. know, because I mean, like, I don't know what I think. You know, the new day of of reading three newspapers and whatever book I'm reading, right? You know, yeah. But still, it's still not. I got a lot of information. You do have a lot. Yeah, I've been making these weekly videos called Knowledge Nuggets. And they're like little things that I think people should know, you know. So, uh, and I try and put a point of view, funny spin on the on the information, you know. Well, give me one knowledge nugget. Uh, the last one was about nasty politics. The uh, nastiest, because <clears throat> we're in a presidential election and it's it's getting nastier and nastier by the day. But the nastiest election in United States history happened in 1800 between President John Adams and his vice president, Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson said that Adams had a hermaphroditical character that did not possess the firmness of a man nor the gentleness of a woman. Oh. And uh, Adams shot back and said that Jefferson is a low-lived fellow, uh, half-breed, uh, half-breed uh, who was... Uh, mother was a squaw, and he was sired by a mulatto father from Virginia. Wow. And then Jefferson actually went to the trouble of hiring a hatchet man who put all these news stories saying that Adams was a weak person, he was coward, but also uh, convinced people that Adams wanted to declare war on France, which is at opposition with being weak, but whatever. It worked. Jefferson became president, and then... Uh, his hatchet man was named James Callender, and he actually went to prison uh, for slander against Adams. And when he got out of prison, he rightfully thought that Jefferson owed him something. And Jefferson thought, I don't know, you Jack Diddley, punk. Yeah. And uh, James Callender, to get back at Thomas Jefferson, started writing articles for newspapers saying that Thomas Jefferson had sexual relations with his slave Sally Hemings. And that's how we know that he had sexual relations with his slave, Sally Hemings. And hundreds of years later, it was confirmed through DNA testing. Wow. So if you're going to take part in nasty politics, you should always take care of your hatchet man because karma is a Hillary. Wow. But can I ask you this? Yeah. It's, it's human nature then. Because if this was going on hundreds of years ago, right, it must have happened since the dawn of time then. Yeah, people. You uh, know, yeah, I mean, the Greeks, the Romans. I yeah, mean, yeah. Were... So it's it's just human nature what we're looking at, and it's there's nothing we can do about it because by looking at the campaign and seeing some of the things that Trump says, it's just it's heartbreaking and it's scary. yeah. Like he's saying that this Mexic this judge of Mexican descent, descent yeah, from isn't Indiana. qualified to. That's against everything our country stands for. I know exactly to say that uh, someone of a certain race isn't qualified to do a job. Yeah, you know that's like throwing uh, Japanese people. In internment camps in World War Two, because I used to work construction in the when I was twenty one. My friend Dan, his dad was uh, had a cattle business, and they were building a house. So my job was to go to all these lumber yards to get like you know order our lumber and stuff. And and there was two runners, me and this other white guy. And I walked into this lumber yard one day, and the guy that was working there said, "Wait, uh, what happened to the other guy?" I go, oh, he, what other guy? He goes, the American-looking one, right? Which 
still to this day, I think about that, that he said that, right? I don't know why when you brought up the Indiana judge and stuff like that. that right. That well, up, he thought you like, weren't qualified because you were. Yeah. That, well, it's also some people believe. So you didn't think you were strong enough? Yeah. Also, some people believe that Americans are white. Yeah. That's the look. You know, if you uh, 10,000 years from now, if there's a dictionary and you opened up United States citizen, that boom, it would be like a white guy. And that's. But that, that stuck with me all those years, you know, that like I'm, I was born here. I'm in America. I don't know anything about Korea. When I went there, I didn't know how to, my brother and I went there for, for free because I wish I was asked to do like a music video. Does this band liked me? So I was dancing in their video and stuff. Oh. So we were out there for weeks and we only went to one restaurant because we didn't know where to go. I mean, we found that oh, they were love rude. Korea. You do. It's amazing. Busan Why? is my favorite. Why? Uh, I like the people. I think it's really interesting. I mean, there's funny things. They're such a proud people. Uh, very efficient. Like, I like Seoul is very cosmopolitan. And these people are very fashionable. And then, you know, like I remember when I was drinking, it's a huge drinking culture. So it's, it's a fabulous place to party. Um, but... The restaurants are like Korean barbecue is like uh, is is like cocaine. It's it's one of the greatest things <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, I've ever experienced. Um, and Busan is like the second city. It's like kind of like the Chicago, but it's a beach town. It's in the south. Yeah, my dad was born there. Busan, and they say yeah. the prettiest girls in Korea come from Busan. Wow, that's what they say within Korea. On the train from Seoul to Busan. Uh, there's, uh, on the, on the bar car, there's like three little rooms where you can rent, uh, they're karaoke rooms and it's like 20 bucks for an hour and you can stand there singing on the train, on the ride. It's like the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. So, uh, Busan has got really stunning beaches and, uh, there's this massive fish market. I know Seoul has a fish market, but, um, I, I love seafood. There's a... There's a Shabu Shabu restaurant in Busan. I would fly back to Korea just to go and eat at this place. It's that's a, how good it that's is. That's how good it is. And uh, and then I was where, I was there for Halloween a few years ago, and and just and a lot of the expats and the local Korean people in Busan just go crazy. They're, the the costumes were really inventive. I I, I it's a, a fabulous place to go on on Halloween. <laughs> It's just, uh, yeah. I, I think it's really cool. Yeah, I did not have that experience. When yeah, I was and then along the beach area are crab restaurants. I love crab. Also, it's like when you said there's beautiful women. For me, when I go there, I just I can't see it. Really? Yeah, I just don't. I've only dated one Korean in my lifetime. And it was a weird experience for me. You know, especially when you're in the dark and you're making love to them. Their faces change. In the darkness. What do you mean? Like glow in the dark? No, then they look like my uncle or then they look like, <laughs> you know what I mean? They look like, you know, Connie Chong and then they look like, you know. Well, no wonder you, had, you dove into drugs. Yeah, like, yeah, years yeah. Ago. I just, for some reason, I dated a Power Ranger. She was on the show. She played, the ones in space. Which there was color? Two, I think she was yellow. Okay. Yeah, you know I mean, and uh, her name was Patty and she was a Power Ranger and I... Um, she then it turned out later she she dated a bunch of Korean celebrity dudes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. where are you going? I'm just. just, just, just. <laughs>
yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, she was extremely attractive, but it didn't work out. So she was a Korean celebrity star fucker. Well, no, she's an actress too, and she's very talented. If she's listening, she's very talented. She just dated, you know, the guy from Lincoln Park. And if Lincoln you try Park. harder, one day you'll be red or blue. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But um, I only dated one. So she was she was in Korea or here? No, she lives here. Oh, yeah, talented girl, very attractive. I lived in Koreatown ten years ago. Yeah, you told and, me that. Uh, Korean people can be very racist, you know. If you're oh, if you're, if you're not Korean, my dad, when I was a kid, yeah. Wrote me a list of the races from best to worst. <laughs> so he said, number one, and you and you still use it. I still use it today as a, as a reference. So yeah, number one, he said Korean, obviously. Number two, it was Chinese. The Japanese were ninetieth. Koreans hate Japanese. Yeah, man. Black people didn't even make the list. What I, I love in Korea, the uh, the Sea of Japan, they call the East Sea. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't even call it. They, <laughs> they, don't they, even won't, even, it. they, they won't even call they, it that. They won't even buy a map that yeah. says Japanese. There's Japan. still that resentment there. Yeah. You know, because we were oppressed for 50 years the from Japanese the Japanese. The were ruthless. And they were the, the worst. And then the, the comfort women that um, were uh, the concubines to the soldiers during the war. Yeah, my dad told me a story of a torture technique. And I Googled it. I couldn't really find it. <clears throat> but he told me that... What the Japanese used to do is they, they take Koreans, tie them by their ankles, then hang them upside down from a tree. Then they would have a boiling pot of water and they would dunk them in this boiling pot of water. And then a layer of skin would boil off and yeah. they'd be like, you know. And um, he just said that they were the, the worst human beings. Ruthless, man. Ruthless, I, yeah. I was in China. There's a, there's a great China tour. And I was in Nanjing. And I'd always heard about the rape of Nanjing. You hear about the this, you know. Uh, I, I I knew the Japanese did some nasty shit there. I I didn't know the full extent of it, and so it's it's a Holocaust museum, and it, it was a Holocaust what the Japanese oh, did yeah. there. And uh, they, they they had con man they they had contests between the soldiers of who could kill the most, and they're bayoneting, oh, and cutting God. open. Pregnant women, and yeah, they yeah. made family members have sex with each other, oh. and like, and these were soldiers that had, you know, like uh, a, a picture of their own family in their wallet. You know, they were like normal people back yeah. in Japan, and they were just, and so like, it's really an excellently done uh, museum there. But I was so emotional, and I was just crying my eyes out, and then I had to go do a show like an hour later. <laughs> So, like, if yeah. you're ever doing a show in yeah. Nanjing, skip the fucking Holocaust Museum. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, they the Japanese thought that Emperor Hirohito was a sun god. Whenever the, the leader is perceived to be some sort of god or, or, or not human, right, they can convince their people to do all kinds of atrocious things, you know? I mean, I, I saw a documentary once where the Japanese stole the Koreans' rice. So some Korean families followed the rice they went to nagasaki or hiroshima with their families just where the food is but a lot of koreans died because that was when the bombs were dropped so imagine being a father bringing your family korean family to hiroshima it'll be safe here and then you're yeah you're, and then you look up and you're like what the fuck you know like it's crazy this is good because i was going to ask you to give me a knowledge nugget 
Yeah. That's, that's, that's kind of... Is that knowledge nugget? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, that probably is. You got any more? I have a lot of knowledge nuggets. <laughs> you know, I've never really thought... Ask me a question. I'll give you a knowledge nugget. I'll improvise one. What is a... Um, <laughs> what is what is a worthy piece of information you think uh, we should know? I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you worthy information. Let's have it. Okay. That you say that the Korean barbecue in Korea is amazing. Yeah. I will bet you that the Korean food in Koreatown is better. Okay. Yeah. And I lived in Koreatown 10 yeah. years ago. David Chang, who's a friend of mine, he's oh, a, a famous. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 well, he, yeah. He, he did the mural or something? No, that's David, that's David Cho. Okay. So David Cho was the artist. But David oh, Chang... okay. I saw him on Anthony Bourdain right. when he went to L.A. Right. Great episode. Right. So they're, they're both very good friends of mine. Cool. But David Chang says that the Korean food in Koreatown is better than the food in Korea. And yeah. I believe that also. I like how he told the story of the L.A. riots, how Koreatown, like, they, they, let, the, they let the Koreatown burn, the cops and the authorities, and that they um, kind of rebelled against being fucked by the authorities by creating such a spectacular area. It's amazing what they did to that area though. It's 15 lived, sprawling blocks of 10 years just, ago it was a, it was it was a little it was sketchy. Yeah, but now the nightlife, the restaurants, it's amazing. Yeah. And um apparently there also in the 70s there was a little bit of a war between the Mexicans that lived in that area and Koreans well, just to a get a few blocks over from there. Is I forget what the name. It's like the mo, one of the most notorious ruthless st- street gangs in the world. It's in like uh, SA thirty seven. M thirteen. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you know SA thirty seven. I like that getting their name. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I knew it was a letters and a number. Yeah, 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 yeah. They are the most ruthless gangs in and the that's, world. They're just like two or three blocks exactly. Because you go because I lived on Wilshire Boulevard and. Uh, you, you go a few blocks over and it's like being in Mexico. There's like the fruit yeah. carts and people selling the little inflatable. When I moved here in the 90s, I lived in Silver Lake. Now, Silver Lake right now is hipster central. Yeah. You can, I mean, bands live there, you know, Winona Ryder or whatever, they live there. But uh, Natalie Portman lives in Echo Park. But when I moved there, I'm not kidding you, at two in the morning, you would hear gunshots a block away. And I'm from the suburbs of San Diego. I come from a town called Poway. Right, so I'm now in basically East LA, three in the morning, gunshots, and I'm trying to be a comic. I was so scared at the time. I thought I was going to die. It's so shocking. Now that area is uh, very chic, you know, and a lot of skinny jeans and funny yeah. mustaches. But uh, well, I remember when I lived in Koreatown uh, 10 years ago, there was a, like a print shop where I would... Um, uh, whatever, have to get things scanned or um, just do things. And uh, the guy pretended like he didn't speak English to me. And I was like, dude, are you kidding me? We had a conversation last week. Yeah, yeah. Remember, I like baseball, you like baseball. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Now you don't speak fucking <laughs> yeah. English. Right, right, <laughs> right. Which is funny, I just... Uh, I, I I just popped in my head. This, I, was, I was looking stuff up on you and I saw this video you did where... You go to a comedy class at the comedy store. You're, mm-hmm. you're doing this um, Asian. Oh yeah, I play Poki Fong. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> yeah. It's so terrible, but it's but a terrible, this, yeah. This uh this this black comic goes on. Yeah. And, then, and like a couple later another black comic goes on and you go, No, no, he already had his turn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was I did that in the time period of because you understand when I was on Mad I was on Mad TV for eight years. Right. And then when I ended Mad TV Hollywood kind of just, I couldn't get anything. Like, I didn't know what else to do. So I tried to get into do your own YouTube and do my own videos. thing. Yeah. And um, that didn't really work out. Like, I did everything I could. I, I did a talk show. I did all these things. And then I did The Road. And, and years later, I got back in. But it, I was in a really difficult time in my career. Of, of sadness. I was very sad and angry. And I kind of let it go. Angry at show business? Angry at show business. Angry at friends of mine that I had helped that wouldn't help you back. Right. Not that you... I don't help people to get helped back. But you would want some sort of love. Maybe when you're in dire straits. You're obviously suffering. Someone should... Right. Like I... Um, I'm not going to name names, but there's a lot of people that I uh, right now have not a resentment, but kind of like, okay. Because you... This this business is all... You know who I do want to thank is Chelsea Handler. Because when she had her show, she basically said to me, I know you really don't. This is not really your thing. To do a panel, but I know you want to sell tickets, so you can do my show anytime you want. And to me, that's somebody that I had started with that had made it, that helped and wanted to help. And I appreciate that. There's a couple of guys like that that did that, but there are a lot of people that didn't, but that's fine, you know. So I was in just in a really tough situation, and but when you let it go... Because, you know, when Ken Jeong, who was my doctor, and he became a very big star, right? And you just kind of, I, and I was jealous. There was a part of me that was very jealous. But then I just one day just focused on my recovery and focused on what was real, which is just living in the moment and being, you know, being in a relationship and, and doing other things other than show business. I think that that helped immensely. Were you and, jealous of Ken, you felt I like was very jealous. Because, you know, there would be like, hangover was happening, and I would call my agents and go, hey, can I get in? They don't want you. Because my agents are very blunt. They would say stuff like, it, your perception is, is that you can only do sketch or whatever. So you go through that. You go through the, the, the hardships of being out, you know, outed you know, and pushed away. And you have to live with that. And then you... And I see guys go through it now. Well, I remember it, um, after my sitcom was canceled, show business or Los Angeles went ice cold on me. Yeah. And I, 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 I had great resentment. To, I was like, fuck this town. Yeah. And I moved back to New York. I looked at my money as like uh, my NBC artist grant. And then I went and lit, And then I started taking... Trips to London, yeah, and I got in with in Europe, and then I ended up moving to Europe. Yeah. So that was my answer to that kind of feeling was to just 
go live a magnificent life and go explore the world. I, I should have so done you that. you stayed here. I fought. And seethed and marinated <laughs> yeah. bitterness and hatreds. Yeah. But you know what? In, in, in retrospect, you know, I think both paths are, you know, correct. That's what we felt we needed to do. But what I also realized is that it comes back around. If you do the work, because I, 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 you know, I am one of those guys that will go in, sign in, and audition, and wait two hours. And it's very humbling to do that at first. Like I was on a series for eight years. I had done some movies, you know, and I would still sign up and compete and get rejected, rejected, rejected <clears throat> a thousand times. Only this last two or three years where I'm actually allowed now actually booking things, which, you know, whenever I get a job now, it is, I have a sense of, of, of like, I won a little lottery or something, you know, but I, um, I will always compete, compete. I will never shy away and I'm going to do it to the end of times. But my anger and my resentment and rage, I've, I that's not going to help me. So I have love for people that, you know, are doing good. Yeah, you know, I would say everything about show business is designed to hurt your feelings. You know, so you always have to be your own Bundini Brown. Bundini yeah. Brown was Muhammad Ali's corner man. So inside your own brain, you need to be your own Bundini Brown and keep talking yourself back from the brink of disaster. <laughs> yeah. Keep sticking, champ. Stay in. You the champ. Uppercut. Jab. Jab. Stick. Yeah. Throw the haymaker, you know. Yeah. Um... And, uh, and, and that's the, the, you really have to, you know, mentally keep yourself from uh, disaster it being in show business because you, you know, you constantly see people doing better than you. I mean, and even in Los Angeles, there's just like such opulent wealth and $200,000 cars rolling around. And Oh yeah. I mean, I have friends that were like real guys I started with that are, they're franchises. They're like little Coca-Colas. Like they have hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, and then you, you know, I live in a moderate two-bedroom, you know, condo with my girlfriend. And it's a great life. And I don't, I'm not struggling. Things are great. Well, I almost feel bad to tell you this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I Googled you, right? Because, you know, I wanted to, you know... Maybe you learned something about you I didn't know. So I, I, I put in Google, Bobby Lee, and then, you know, like it, think, like there'll be the little little box where, like, where it's guessing what you're, the next word you're going to uh, put in. Yeah. And, and then the next word was net worth. So it says Bobby Lee's net worth. Do you know this is on the internet? No. And I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this to you, but I couldn't help but click on it. Yeah. And uh, it says you're worth a million dollars. Yeah, I'm not. Okay, I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. was going to say like I mean, you might be a in, like maybe in, that's maybe that's like too small or no. In retrospect, I mean, I guess. And who the fuck is coming up with? I don't know who comes up with that. And and there are hard time, There have been years where I have made that. So maybe that's coming into it. So I have made a very a nice living, but you know, you, people go. I have friends from high school that go. Yeah, you're. You should be so happy. This and that. But what people don't realize is that I've had calls from casting directors to agents saying he's not talented. Wow. 
or he he's just he's not a star. And I have a thing with my agents and my manager saying that I don't want a filter. I want brutal honesty so I know who's on my list to take out <laughs> when I actually when the, do make when it. When the shooting starts. Right. Right. So they tell me, they go, yeah, he just doesn't see it. Not a fan. Not a fan. Yeah. And you get those. Maybe right, I should yeah. have a filter. Yeah. But I get those raw notes and opinions and I it, it goes into my little hate box in my heart. And so I... I just I need that because here's what I don't want. I hate deception. I hate when people are nice to you when you know they're not a fan or they're seeing you because of some sort of political reason. I don't want that. You know, I want it up front. And I also know there's a casting director in LA, Allison Jones. She does all the Seth Rogen movies, Apatow movies. She does The Office, anything great, Kirby Enthusiasm. And 95% of all my jobs have always been through Allison, and I know she's an ally. I know that she fights for me, and I love her for that. You know, and um, she's, I, in my opinion, the best casting director in LA. Because she's not, there's, no, there's not a feeling of uncomfortability when you go in there. There's always candles and water available, and open windows, and just hugs, and and welcome. And there's another caster that does that named Wendy O'Brien. There's dogs running around. She doesn't see a thousand people. So you don't go into a lobby in front of a... There's always one or two people and people that are credible so that you don't feel like it's a cattle call. And there are people out... Anyway, I don't want to bore people with it, but like I get brutal honesty and that's why I feel like I feel the way that I do, you know? When you told me also that you really prepare... For the for a lot of these auditions and stuff, you yeah. really put a lot into it. I mean, I've, I've had some nightmares. That's why. Well, tell me, let's hear about the nightmares. I mean, I've had some career crushing bad auditions where I didn't prepare. Where I mean, one I've talked about it before on podcasts, but it was for a uh, a big movie. My agent said. It's only with the casting director. So in my head, I'm like, I don't have to prepare. I show up the next day and there's 20 people in the room. Hmm. And I knew that something was wrong because when I was there, I was the only one in the lobby. And it was a really nice lobby where there was like a, a little fountain with water, like down a little waterfall that koi fish, you know, and they'd offered me a glass of water where usually it's like a plastic thing. And I walked in and it was 20 people with cameras and the whole setup. And I knew Tom that I didn't know any of it. I mean, for me to audition for this would be me just strictly reading it off the page. And I knew that I couldn't read. I had to get out of there. So when you left? This is what happened. So this is so I'm, I had the first line. And this is what the cast director said. And this is how long I, it took for me to say anything. She goes, she goes, are you ready? I go, uh-huh. She goes, okay, go. Bye. <laughs> and I left. And you left. I said bye effeminately and I left the room. And I got in my car and I cried because I knew that it was going to be devastating. I can't believe you didn't get that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You didn't see what a bullshit move <laughs> I know. But my agents at the time called me and they said, you're done. 
Really? Yeah, because they went there for you, 20 people. Oh, wow. Like high-powered people. And this is after Mad TV? After Mad TV, you fucking ruined it. So what the agency did was they pawned me on to someone young at the agency, who I'm still with. Which, in, in retrospect, I'm, I'd rather be with this kid, guy, my agent Ben. You know, he's the best. But, um, yeah, I, I made some critical errors. So now, I try to prepare. But I would think, like, after all the characters you did on Mad TV, that you would be offered parts. No. You know? Oh, man, remember the guy who did the thing? No, 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 no. The opposite happened. The opposite was true. They said, he can only do that. He's too broad. Hmm. He doesn't know how to act. That's not acting. That's People think sketch isn't acting. No. At the time, no. But what has helped me is the success of Key and Peele. Because they were on Mad with me for five or six years. And Ike Barinholtz, who's on Mindy Project, and now he's in Neighbors. He's in that new Suicide Squad movie. And these are guys that I were on Mad TV with. And Mad guys had to switch the perception of it. Because back in the day, we were, we were known as SNL's bitch. Right? And that's, you know, as, you know, Lauren Michaels is mafia. It's comedy mafia. And we were, you know, a B version of what they were. So we were perceived as that. But I think in, I think we've changed that perception a little, a little bit. Because Alex Borstein was on Family Guy. She's, done, she's on that new HBO show. People have done things since then. So, you know, I'm on Love, which is Judd Apatow's Netflix show. And um, I think it's changed. It, it has a different feeling. You know, also... So when, years later, the show is more respected, it seems like. You also have to wait because our our demographics were kids. Right. So now, now all those kids are in L.A. and they're like all producers and they're doing things now, right? So th- oh, their perception of it was, oh, we loved it, right? Like, you know, I watch YouTube videos that get millions of hits. I don't know if it's funny or not, but it's got millions of hits. Kids love it. And, you know, there are, I just don't get it, you know, but... I'm also not one of those guys that like are angry with YouTube and the internet. You know, like you see your comments like, you hear about, you know, so-and-so, that YouTube store that got signed by CAA. I'm like, in my opinion, it's like, yeah, and he's killing it. Yeah, it's the modern world, baby. It's like, yeah, yeah, you either adapt or leave. <clears throat> you know, it's like, you know, what am I going to do? Point fingers? I, I did a movie a year ago. It's not out yet. And they, I got a call from YouTube guys. They go, hey, you want to do this movie with two YouTube stars? But we have a half a million dollars to do this movie. We want you to play the main villain. There's no money in it. Can you do it? And I said, yes. Now, Universal picked it up, right? And it comes out in September. There's going to be two premieres, right? And I'm the main bad guy in it. And it's like, it's either like if... Any, it was anybody else. They would have said, fuck you. I want money. I want points or whatever. You know what I mean? Who's in it? I'm not going to do it. For me, I know that that's the future and I'm going to adapt to what the future is. And so when I was on set with all these YouTube stars, a lot of YouTube stars were on it. You know, they would ask me for advice. I helped. You know, I, 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 you know, I was there. I was present. And I wasn't a douchebag. I was one of many. And you have to do that or you're dead. Right, Tom? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I want to say a couple of things about you. Okay. Okay, this is that I view you 
as a Louis C.K. and a Mark Maron in that light. You know, I believe that you're a legend. I do believe that. And I've said that to you. And you, I know you're uncomfortable when I say that. But it's like, you know, you left for 10 years. You went to Europe or whatever you needed to do. But I believe, right, that your time isn't here yet. I believe that there, you're going to kill it. But I, I really need you to be proactive. And I know you're, you are going to be proactive. But you need to try I, a little harder. I, I, I really think that you're great. And I think that, and I, I say that to Mark Maron too, you know, but he doesn't, you know, he, he takes it in a more, you know, ah, yeah, 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 kid, you know, that type, which is fine. But um, there are people like you and people that uh, I think that it's, it's, it's only beginning. You know, you're well, a good thanks, dude. You're a good what, dude. Uh, what advice would you give me? I think that you have this uh, kind of uh, passive personality. And you, because just in your act, it's kind of, go, I'm going to go with the flow, right? Just quietly work hard. And then, I understand and then, that. And but no, that man, I think that there needs, like that. I think there needs to be a little bit of an aggression. Like, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, I'm signed with CAA, which are the biggest agency in the world, I believe. And I'm low on their comedy roster. I mean, they've got huge people. And I'm on the bottom. That's fine. I still go in there and go, what's up? Where's mine? Right? And I, I, I put a little fear in them to let them know is, is that Okay, I'm not Melissa McCarthy. I'm not Zach Alfranakis, but right, I need the opportunity or I'm going to leave. I'm not going to really leave. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're the biggest, but I love them. But you know, you have to ask people to help you. You know, so they they give me the auditions and uh and I I've had a great year. This has been the best year of my career. What's been the highlight? The movie? No, Love. Doing because in the first season of Love, oh right, they yeah. only used th me three. I was in three scenes essentially, but in between seasons, Judd called me and said, "Can you come into the writer's office because I want to do one episode revolved around your character?" So I went in there, and for Judd Apatow to do that is amazing. What a to great me. guy! I love that. Great, guy. great guy. Really great guy. I've just gotten to uh, meet him and talk to him a few times at the comedy store in the last year. Yeah, since I moved here. What yeah, a, what a what a great, wonderful, amazing person. And amazing comedy and yeah, and he he's constantly cranking out TV shows and movies. Uh, I mean, girls, right? He does love now. He does. Uh, he did the Pee Wee Herman movie, right? See, I saw that on Netflix. Yeah. That, it had this Rube Goldberg opening. It was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he's a uh, proactive, really nice guy. He invited me to a lunch with <clears throat> Seinfeld. Like at the, at the pub, I was sitting there with you know, him and everybody was there. It was like he made me, he's, he's made me feel like I'm still in it. You know. But so I just finished the second season. They have an episode revolved around my character, which is great. And then I, you know, I did a couple of days on... Zach Alphanakis and John Hammer in a movie called um, Keeping Up with the Joneses. And I did a scene with John and Zach in Atlanta. And it was two days with these guys. And it was an amazing scene. I had so much fun. 
And so, you know, as long as, and I just did a commercial, I just told you, not on air, with Jane Lynch and Kean Peel for Booking.com that made me a lot of money. And also, but it's not only that, they're funny, I think. And it just makes you feel like you're still in it. And so this year has been just amazing. And I've had some dark fucking years, bro. Really dark times, but I just feel grateful that I'm, you know, working and it's it feels good, you know? And that's why I'm here with you. Yeah. What's your character on The Love Show? I just play a guy named Truman and I play Gillian Jacobs' friend at work. But And in, in the show, the first season, I was pretty much stuck at work. So any scenes at her with her at work, I was in. But it wasn't, you know, it's fine. You know, I took it for what it was. And then now I'm invited outside, which gives me more to do, right? And um, there's a lot of great people in it I mean I just did an episode with I mean Andy Dick he's already did the first season but with Andy and Jason Dill who's an amazing skateboarder the lead singer of the Eels and we were on one party scene and Horatio Sands and we're all doing this like party scene and it's, just, it's eclectic it's uh, people that I adore and love and it's just been a really cool deal man you know and if people were to ask me, because, you know, if that five or six years after Mad TV was so dark and frustrating, and I wouldn't change it for the world the way it's gone. And now, you know, they picked Mad TV back up. Do you know that? They're reshowing it or they're redoing new ones? They're new one. Oh, they, wow. they hired a new cast. Wow. And Adam Ray, who was one of my openers on the road for years, got cast. Right? And I, got a, I had a meeting with them. And they wanted me to host a couple. So cool. it's, it's come nice full nod. fucking yeah. circle. Now I'm like back as an elder statesman helping these kids in a new generation. And, it's, and I feel young still too, though. I still get I I I for cigarettes, bro. You look great. I like, the, I like the hair shaggy and grown out. Thank you yeah, so much, man. It's really nice. Yeah, but it's like anyone that's in it, this business... Well, it's funny that you felt bad about it or, or this business made you feel bad about it. And then years later, you finally get the recognition that you deserve. It's not even recognition. They, I don't, I don't think I'm like, they, you know, you're seen as, you know, they bring you in and you're an elder statesman. Yeah, yeah, Passing yeah. the torch on. Right. And it's not, it's not, it's, I listen, you know, I, I, I have friends like Eric Stone Street who are a modern family and they make, he makes hundreds of thousand dollars a week, you know, and I may never get there. Okay. But I'm okay with that, is what I'm saying to you. And it's like, I, you know, I'm just, I have a podcast with my girlfriend, Tiger Belly, and we do it, and it's... Well, thanks for inviting me. No, I, first of all, Tom, (laughs) number one, all right, I've only had two guests on it, right? And number two, no, just listen to me, (laughs) sir. I would 100% have you on it, because I'm always afraid to ask people, is my thing. You know what I mean? But... You know, so it's, you know, it's just been anyone that's in it, just keep going, is what I'm saying, you know? So you do it with your girlfriend. So she's uh, in the business? She's actress? No. Um, I met my girlfriend on Tinder. Did you really? Yeah. Wow. So three years ago. Swiped right. I swiped right because she was so hot. Yeah. And my intentions were, I'm going to penetrate and then dine and dash. Right. Right. Squirt so, and dash. Yeah, squirt and dash. You know, I don't really screw, squirt, I drool. <laughs> yeah, my stuff doesn't work correctly. It doesn't, I've never squirted. Do you squirt? 
<laughs> Let's, all right. <laughs> anyway, um, so <laughs> I met her in Long Beach and at a coffee shop. And as soon as I met her, I knew this number one is not going to be Dine and Dash, right? Because she, we're, we spent three hours talking, right? And then number two, we just started dating and just going out and we didn't have sex right away. And it was just one of those things where I'm like, this is like a really cool girl. And now we live together and we're obviously years exclusive. We have three cats, a puppy, a podcast. And um, she's also have had some medical issues. She's had a, she has a heart condition. So we've been in the hospital a lot. In fact, she was at the hospital three days ago at five in the morning. We had called the ambulance. And two weeks ago, we were driving to Phoenix to see my parents. And she had had a heart episode in the middle of the desert. So we went to Blythe. Wow. Yeah, so it's been a... I got a a speeding ticket there once. In Blythe? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's been a very... It's a good place to speed through. Right, but it's not a good place for a heart condition. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it's been tough in that way. But it's worth it. It really is. I've never thought that I would ever say that out loud. Where I, this is how I know I love this girl, is because of the fact that the, all this stuff are stuff that I would do for my brother or my mom and dad, and that's it. I would do it for Kalila, and that's she's like my family. She really is, and I will do anything, and I will endure anything. So it's been good in that way, you know. And I know that you're in love. Yeah, yeah you can relate to what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, my my wife is my family. You can tell. Yeah, with you too. Um, and I'm very concerned about her happiness. And yeah, and it's 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 um, important now. I mean, I look at Al Madrigal and Steve Renazizi and all some of my friends that have kids. You know, I don't know if that's in my path, but I know that they're lying to me by saying that it's worth it. Yeah, everybody says that. Yeah, because I don't know. I don't know if it is worth it. It's not. And my There's wife no way and I are like, wow, we you know we have a kid or spend our money traveling and buying nice clothes. You know. You know who I know it's not worth it is because I have a puppy. Now it's, I know it's nothing like having a child, but once I saw the puppy, I was like, I have to do this now. Yeah. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to be a nightmare. I haven't slept really good. I've had this puppy for four days. I had to take her out, you know, every two hours because she does not potty train yet. She's only six weeks old. And it's been a nightmare. And I know that some of my friends, Al told me, Madrigal, it's worth getting a puppy. So I got one. And I know now he's a liar. Yeah. See, because what we've done recently in the last few weeks is get – I bought a lot of fruit trees for the balcony. I've got a, a peach tree, a navel orange tree. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, a kid is... I don't have a kid because I don't want stupid drawings on my refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to have to pretend that this is a... <laughs> uh, but I, I know... I want, I want stuff to go in the fridge, not on the fridge. Right. That's why we got fruit trees. And but stuff. I know your, I don't know your wife at <clears> all, but I know, I just, I've had conversations with her and it just, it's just, a, I just know that you guys would have a great one 
And it might be worth it to have one. Because at the end of the day, it's like, who's going to take care of you when you get old? There you go. And my dad... Social Security, you know, the Trump presidency will probably kill that. Kill so. that. and um, <clears throat> So, yeah, I, I should get a kid and brainwash him that taking, care, even, taking care of your elderly my father, parents is the most important thing. My father life. was the worst <clears throat> dad he could have. He was violent. He beat me with golf clubs. I mean, he, he was a tyrant. And this is how I know. When he had a stroke two years ago, my brother and I got in my Prius and we drove to Phoenix. Got there in three and a half hours. That's how fast... I went four hours and we saw him and we thought, cause he was, that was going to die. And he looked at us and he said, in Korean, he said, it's worth it. It was worth it to have you too. Right. And he was a nightmare. And yet my brother and I still would be by his side and do anything. We, I send my parents money every month for the last 10 years. Really? I take care of them. That's how I know. That I might want to have a kid. That's why your net worth isn't a million. That's their <laughs> fault. It's their fault. But my point though is I think that it's worth it to have one. Okay. Yeah. You have one? I'll, if you have one, I'll have oh, one. Okay. I'll see your kid and match <laughs> you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was in San Diego a couple weeks ago and uh, I thought it was, it's probably, seems like one of the most perfect places in the world. So can you talk me out of no, living it, there? No, it's not. you grew up there. It's not. It's a, it's like a sand trap. It not only it's a sand, it's not even a sand trap. What it is is it's a extremely conservative place. People don't know that, but it's a military town. And also, we have beautiful bit beaches. We have Wind and Sea. Del Mar's nice. Coronado. There's, oh my God, there's beautiful places, and it's a great place to visit. And I think also it might even be a good place to raise a child. It's extremely clean. And it's a beautiful, and it's got one of the best weathers, hands down, in the world. I think it's top, yeah, it's it like, ranks fifth <clears throat> yeah, in the uh, world. A uh, year-round average temperature of 82 degrees. It's, right. It's perfect. But if you're a young man who's creative and who's also a minority, it's not the town. So I might not, I probably wouldn't talk you from living there, but if you were an ethnic and you wanted to get laid, Never. I never got any girls there. You're kidding. And I thought it was my body and my face or whatever, but no, it's. I think it was there. I, when, as soon as LA, killing it. Killing it. Killing the game in LA. You know, I think, I also hate beach culture. I hate, dude, I want a women's and smoke, you know, blunt, and, you know, that's all I need, dude, me and my dog, you know, and I don't, yeah. that, it, it's, well, yeah, that's the thing. In, in San Diego, you always see, uh, like, Pacific Beach. It's lazy. And uh, what's it? Uh, Ocean Beach. You see 40-year-old guys on skateboards with six-packs going nowhere. Going, yeah, I know. Nowhere. And also, you know, I got sober in San Diego originally, and I there was this thing called the Alano Club where I'm in Pacific Beach where it's like, you know, they have AA meetings 24-7. And you walk, looked in there. I looked in there one day, and I just saw a bunch of, like, you know, old men with 50 years of sobriety playing cards, you know, in the lobby. And it's like, I don't want that. I want, I want to take risks and I want to go for it. And, and I got that from being sober the first time that I got sober. And I'm, I don't want to live a life of just nine to five and being a zombie.
What's your uh, What's the best thing about sobriety for you? It's the notion of because what I love about twelve step groups is the only way to truly get sober and to be happy is to get out of yourself to help other people. And that's something that you can't avoid. The second thing you can't avoid is a spiritual life. These are things that are the foundations of the program. So it forces me to not be a Hollywood douchebag. I could easily be one, but I can't because if I am, here's another thing. I can't cheat on Kalila. I don't ever want to, but that's not even in my realm of thinking because it, it goes against helping people and it's, 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 it's deception and it's lying and it's all those things that lead to relapse. So that's another thing is, is that I kind of have to live an honest life because if I don't, then I will relapse and I will inevitably, I could die. Well, yeah. That's what it, I, that's why I love about tall stuff. I go Sunday to this thing called Sundowners, and you know, me, and my friend Charlie, go my brother. We have dinner afterwards. It's a ritual. It's been like that for fourteen years. And um, you did a cold turkey, correct? I didn't go to AA. I didn't go to one. <laughs> yeah. I didn't go to one AA meeting. Yeah, I just did it on my own. And I think vanity is the real reason I stopped drinking. Because yeah. <clears throat> the last few years I was drinking, I really started to look like shit, and. Uh, my dad had this, uh, my dad was a lifelong heavy drinker as I was. And my dad had this fat white guy, alcoholic face with the bulbous nose. Yeah. And I was starting to get that fat white guy, alcoholic face. Yeah. And then I blacked out in Philadelphia, fell off this bar stool, busted my head open. So the next day I had, uh, these Frankenstein stitches on my forehead and I had a black eye and I looked in the mirror and I saw so much ugliness. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I used to be a pretty decent looking guy. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think vanity was, I mean, that was a big major part of it. But also, I just, I, I made a promise to myself. I'm going to go one year to see what it's like not being fucked up every night. Yeah. And so I went a year and I got so much done. And then the number one thing is the low magnitude depression that I always had was gone. Yeah. Where like you always think, oh man, I'm hungover and you're hungover and that's this feeling. No, it was this low magnitude depression that was always... Like a lingering me. depression, yeah. And uh, and then also, uh, when I wake up, I'm awake. I don't have to spend half the day recovering from all the drugs and alcohol I did the night before. Yeah, so I, I don't think I would... Would do you see yourself as an alcoholic then? You thought you were an alcoholic? I, was, I always thought... I mean, just, you know, life of the party. Yeah. And uh, I'm all for... I love I love cigarettes. I love booze, especially wine is yeah. my favorite. And I yeah. know a lot about wine. But um, I'm not... Like, people go... Uh, when you stop drinking, people go, will this bother you? Like, if they're drinking around you. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. People are so fucking stupid. I you know. know? Oh, does this bother you? Oh, yeah, I'm going to, like, capitulate because you were standing next to me sipping a beer. Also, you're no, I don't constantly, I mean, <clears throat> you would have to live in, you know, Antarctica to not be around it. Yeah. I, I mean, I li we work at comedy clubs. Yeah. It's, I, I get handed bags of weed after shows. Yeah. I'm a big fan, and I have to say, no, thank you. I'd love to smoke it, but I don't. Yeah. Well, um, I think um, the... Uh, God, what was I going to say? The 
I'm not bothered by people drinking. I encourage people to, you know, enjoy your life. Just when you're in your 40s and you black out in Philadelphia and you bust your head open, might be time to, uh, you know, reconsider the... You're one of the rare cases that can do that, though. Yeah, I know. You really are. And also, um, I don't want to die. Yeah. So, like, it's just simple mathematics that, you know, there's not too many people that reach, that are going to their 50s who are still heavily drinking and smoking. Yeah. And so I, I, I used to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and I stopped a year ago. So, and it wasn't, I mean, it's just basically. I How was, does it, do you, because I've been, I've been smoking so much. I still smoke. Do you, do you cough anymore? No. Go wow. on. I used to cough all the time. I get, you'll hear me, um, regular listeners to the podcast will hear me clear my throat a lot. Yeah. Uh, and that's from these nicotine lozenges that have kept me off the cigs. Right. They yeah. work. Yeah, but my Ashna's on my ass. You kind of look like Brian Cranston for a second there. I do. Oh, great. Thanks. Could you come up with any more unflattering person to tell me? Tom about? Hardy. Does that feel better? <laughs> Does that feel better? That's much better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You really kind of look like Brian Cranston a little bit. Thanks. A younger version. With hair. The Brian Cranston with hair. Yeah, but did, did, no one's ever said that to you? Uh-uh. No. Okay. My bad. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. My favorite thing about not drinking is it's really powerful not to drink because people tell you all their secrets when they're fucked up. Yeah. I always use my mother's maiden name, Johnson, for passwords. And <laughs> my birthday yeah. is blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and also it's like, I don't... My routing numbers. <laughs> yeah. Last night at the Laugh Factory, two comics, I can't tell you, you know who they are, almost got in a fist fight. And one of them was drunk. And I don't, I'm not in those situations anymore. You know? Yeah. Of like in the middle of violence, you know, or having, ha- having to apologize the next day about something that I had said yeah. or did. You know, um, I, you know, when I got, first got sober, I did some wild things. Some things that were, but you know, it took me a long time to heal psychologically and behavioral wise. I was a crazy person, you know, and that's, a, that's also a, being Korean has a lot to do with that. We're very like, I think a lot of oppressed people, have you ever noticed that most of the Asian comics for a while were Koreans? Margaret Cho, me, Ken Jeong, uh, John Cho's an actor, but you know, he's getting dabbles in comedy. Korean. There was only, there weren't, at a, a long time, no Japanese guys even doing it. Kevin Kwatooka. You know Kevin? Yeah, I know Kevin. Yeah. That's pretty much it. You have some Chinese, Shang Wang, but they're most Korean, mostly Korean. And then that's a cultural thing. You know how they say that Koreans are the, um, the Jews of the Orient? Do they? Yeah. And I think it has to do with people, some people think it's because they were frugal business wise, but I think it has to do with oppression. Because Korean people are loud. We're, we're like, you know how the, the, the stereotype is that Asians are, you know, conservative and quiet, you know, and passive. No, but Koreans are, are the opposite. Yeah. We're a lot like Filipinos, loud, violent, drunk. Because my girlfriend is Filipino. My girlfriend's uncle sliced her other uncle in half with a machete. And that's like, and that's, that's no big deal. It's a Philippine thing. It's a Philippine thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those Filipinos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, um, yeah. 
So I'm a little worried about my parking. Are we done? Yeah, man. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let me just ask you a couple questions. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. yeah. Um, what is the greatest advice you've ever been given as a comedian? Oh, this is a good one. Um, well, I have two. Let's hear it. Okay, the number one thing is Mitzi Shore, Polly's mom, said to me once when she was coherent in the late 90s, 97 maybe, she goes, it is a sin to support mediocrity. I agree with that. Yeah, so what she was implying or saying was that like a lot of times when you see like a hot chick do an open mic, you say, you want to say, you should keep doing it even though they shouldn't. Right. I don't do that. You have to stop that. It's a sin. And the second thing is this, is that when I tested for Mad TV, I was, you have to understand, I had never taken an acting class. I'd really barely been on television. And I was nervous. And the only two people they were testing for Mad was me and Taryn Killam. I don't know if you know Taryn, but he's on SNL now. He's killing it. But Taryn was 17 at the time. And the night before, I didn't, I, I, I was scared. Because, you know, I, you, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but when you test for a TV show, you have to do it in front of the president of the network. Right. And executives. It's really nerve-wracking. The most intimidating thing in the world. Yeah, it's very intimidating. And so I went, and I went to the comedy store to see Guy Torrey. Guy Torrey's brother, Joe Torrey, was hosted Def Jam, Comedy Jam. You know, so it's, they were like brothers that were doing stand-up. But I really looked up to Guy. And I went, I went to uh, the comedy store and I pulled him aside and I said, I'm scared to do this test. I don't know if I can do it. And Guy said, show them what it's like to make love to a woman for the first time. I go, what? And he goes, what he, what, what he means by is, is that when you first make love to a woman, you show them everything. All your skills. You, know, you, you, you try very hard, Right. He says, you have comedy muscles and things that you know how to do, right? Show them all of that. Leave it all out there. And that's what I did. I ripped my shirt off in the test. I flipped upside down, you know, did a character where I flipped upside down. And I did all these things because I know that I'm physical, high energy. And I showed them all the things that I can do as a comedian. And I got it, right? So... I think, um, and then my only, my last advice to young comics is go up as much as you can because I did Leno once. My, in year 2000, I did Leno. And it was, I've never been so scared in my life. And the reason why I was able to do Leno was because I go up 12 times a week. That shit is like riding a bike to me. You know, I repeat jokes over and over again until they're ingrained into my psyche. Right. And like I can just go up there. Record. I can go up there and I can just do it. No matter what's going on. Yeah, I mean, every night I go to the comedy store, you're there. Yeah. You know? I mean, I have to go now, actually. It's nine. Yeah. Okay, in closing, is there any words of wisdom or advice that you have for the people of the earth? I just... Oh, and people of the earth is... Um, I mean, the thing that I have to say is that everyone says. <laughs> but the only thing that's real is now. The present moment. People know that. You're the first person ever to say that. Here? Yeah, on this podcast. Bobby, I love you to death. Tommy. Long may you run, brother. Long may you run. Long may you run, brother.